This week on the show, we have FreeBSD and DragonflyBSD benchmarks on AMD's Threadripper. NetBSD 7.2 has been released. Uh, we have covering optimized out D-Trace kernel symbols, as well as stuck UFI bootloaders, and why Ed is not a good editor today. Uh, tell your BSD story and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 264, optimized out, recorded for the 19th of September 2018. Yes, uh, that's the month, and we are the same people as you always know. I'm Benedict Reuschling, your host. And I'm Alan Jude, who's been yep, by just, though, just a reminder. Today. It, it, yeah, we're still the same people. Alan is freshly back from the OpenZFS Dev Summit last week, or actually this week, yes. the beginning of this week where we record this. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I guess there will be more things um, in a in a different episode about that when there are a couple of videos out. Or do you want to yeah. say a couple of things? Uh, I can talk a little bit about it. It was a great time. It was very nice to get to meet with a bunch of these people again. Uh, the technical talks on the first day were great. Uh, there were some really detailed ones and some uh, very accessible ones for beginners and so on. Uh, and then uh, we had I had a great time at our little after party. Uh, you know, getting to stand around and complain about hard drives with uh, people from <laughs> every different project was quite a bit of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, How many people were there? Did it, does it grow over the years? Do you think? Uh, Is it ish? I think we actually had a cap on a hundred of a hundred people. Huh. Um, I'm not sure, but um, yeah, so it was, it was around a hundred people on the first day, uh, and it was very good. And then. On the second day, we were at Delphix's office, which we've done a number of times, although uh, two of the uh, last year and two years before that, when I was there, they were both at GitHub. Um, oh, yeah, I remember the Octocad picture. In the um, so the, uh, the hackathon, we actually spent the first couple hours doing smaller presentations, lightning talks, uh, mm-hmm. mostly getting status updates on people's work in progress, uh, whereas the main talks were more explaining specific subsystems or introducing mostly completed features rather than in progress stuff. Um, and then we had hackathon for a while. Uh, part of that was we had a working group about coordinating development across the different platforms. Oh, uh, that's important. That's, yeah. Uh, coming yeah. out of that is a master spreadsheet tracking, um, which features are available in which different operating systems, uh, so there's, you know, the uh, Lumos, ZFS on Linux, uh, FreeBSD, uh, OS X, et cetera, uh, but also tracking who's responsible for bringing it into the different projects. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, well, this feature, encryption's not landed in FreeBSD yet. There are people working on it, and putting their names down means that as the people working on it in other projects find problems or whatever, they can make sure, hey, heads up, uh, we found this bug uh, you're going to want to merge this commit in addition uh, when you merge this over into FreeBSD and so on. And make sure to ask person X who is that yeah. person's owner uh, or that item's owner. Yes, yeah, so to know who to ping for different things. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, it sounds like we're going to also set up a monthly call with stakeholders from the different projects. Also and try good. to uh, better define what OpenZFS is because, you know, for example, the ZFS on Linux is diverging a bunch in different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and coordinate getting more of that everything commonized and also yeah keeping it together sure, making sure that the features that go in are actually ready uh and making sure we don't end up in situations where we have a, a buggy release of ZFS because it's a file system it really needs to be stable that needs to be yeah super hard stable yeah 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 uh, good. so we're going to have a call to to coordinate that and try to keep things uh on track uh, but more importantly, you know, there's just so much happening in ZFS nowadays as the group of developers gets bigger and bigger and more and more companies yeah, yeah. are using it. It's popular. <laughs> it will just help for everybody to have a basic idea of what's going on everywhere so that we don't get you know, two different companies independently spending all their time working on a thing and then they both arrive with, I've, I've completed this feature. And it's like, well, I've completed it, yeah. but differently. Like, well, <laughs> I did it first. One? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, well... We both worked on A, and we both want B. We could have done one of us do A and one of us do B. And it's not working in each other's systems, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so well. on. So uh, that's good, and it was very good to see that. And then uh, later in the day, after that, uh, I uh, also, we had some talk about uh, OpenZFS as a project itself and uh, trying to uh, sort of a fundraising model for it. And uh -huh. uh, giving it, uh, so it doesn't have its own foundation, but it's under software in the public interest, it's which PI, is an yep. existing nonprofit that can basically run a bank account for OpenZFS and allow it to accept donations and mm -hmm. allow it to write checks to, say, a venue to host a conference and to pay for the food and so on. Yep. Uh, so looking at having sponsorship for OpenZFS that isn't just for the conference as well, uh, to cover other things, but also to allow the project to handle the plus minus on the conference every year and so on yeah because accounting is also an important thing to make the future the next one happen without having someone run into bankruptcy yeah and yep. things like that uh and also just looking at what kind of things can we offer the companies in exchange for the donations whether that's guaranteed seats at the dev summit especially if we start having to cap how many people can come although we really mm -hmm. don't want to do that uh but you know it comes down to where can we get a, a venue for that many people and how do we organize it and so on uh and just other things we can do uh things we need to be very careful about doing you know yeah it's it's how do, how do we have an open set of code of contact without uh setting off a bomb in the source code <laughs> Uh, yeah. So well, yeah. As the project grows and yeah. more people are involved, uh, and then and we moved on. I then worked uh, with uh, Pavel Zakharov, Don Brady, Brian Bellendorf, and George Wilson on coming up with what we would do for VDev properties. Uh, you know, originally we were thinking we were going to have Leaf and uh, top-level VDev properties, and then we realized, well, all the settings we want except for one are top-level, so maybe we don't need to do Leafs, especially if you override a setting on a specific leaf VDEV in, say, a mirror, and then you zpool replace that device with another device, it's not going to keep that setting. Or is it? We had to ask George about that, and we got it. Um, but it's not going to keep the setting, and so that gets confusing. Mm. Um, and then we find out, well, that particular setting only makes sense at the top level anyway. You, you can't control the queue depth on individual disks, only on the top level. Uh, and so that kind of changed everything anyway. Mm. Uh, but anyway, after many many iterations we now know exactly what it is uh how we want it to look and uh we like the way it's going to go and so there's that good good 
And speaking of George Wilson, he presented his ZIO walkthrough at the first on the first day yes, of the conference. I saw a bit helpful. of the live stream that was provided, uh, but I couldn't watch the whole thing, so bits and pieces there. But it's good I, that people... It might already be on YouTube already, actually. Uh, we probably Is it? Oh. The links for that. oh, good. Because uh, I think they live streamed it to YouTube, so it's automatically ready right away. Yeah. I got something to watch over the weekend. <laughs> um, yeah, if people are interested, then they can definitely uh, I, scroll. I would watch that but, one again. I was paying very close attention while I was there, but I would watch that one again. For the bits and pieces. Sense, I was <laughs> really knee-deep in that code recently working on the Zit Sanders stuff. Mm. Uh, ah, the other really interesting one that came up was uh, ZFS is looking at deprecating a feature for the first time ever. Oh, yeah, I think I saw a tweet about that. Yes, so uh, deduplicated send receive. So if you do a send with the capital D flag, yep. uh, most people think it has something to do with the dedupe feature in ZFS, but it doesn't. It dedupes only the stream. It, it, it happens in user land in the ZFS send command, and yeah, it only deduplicates within what you're sending. So if you're sending one snapshot, it's only deduplicating within that snapshot, not the whole file yeah. system even just limited. the range of, of snapshots yeah. you're sending. Um, and it uses a lot of CPU and a lot of memory. Um, and does it... Because yeah. if, for example, if you have a regular data set where you've not set a, a dedupe-capable checksum, it has to recompute the checksum of every block in order to dedupe it. And then keep this giant dedupe table and then all the mm. stuff and then send it to the other side. The code isn't used very often, it's not tested very well, and it's a big pain in the butt. So okay. we're looking at possibly getting rid of it. But okay. the question is, also how do we important. do that in such a way as not to mess up users? Yeah, yeah if people have used that feature and we don't so know about it. So one thing we're then... looking at is making a standalone tool that can rehydrate a stream, can take a dedupe stream. <laughs> so basically, the way a dedupe send stream works is when you get to sending the second copy of the block, you have a special record. Instead of a write, you have a write by reference. And you just say this block is just a copy of the block from over there from previously. Mm. So a rehydrator, if you had a send stream as a file, you could just seek in that file, find the other block and copy it and basically turn it back into a regular write instead of a... So you could convert the stream from being a dedupe stream to being a regular stream mm. so that you could still receive it on a newer pool that doesn't support dedupe receiving anymore. Okay. Yeah, that would be a separate feature, but it's not yeah, part of the so, core ZFS anymore. So far, what we've looked at is putting, uh, improving the man page to explain that this feature doesn't involve dedupe itself, and it's kind of a misnaming, um, and that it's we're planning to deprecate it, and we're adding a warning to the command. So when you actually do a send with dash d, it will say, "Hey, this is going away." Here's a link to the the pull request where you can comment if you have a use case where this is like super important to you or whatever. Mm. Um, and so on. But really what it came down to is my comment that does it mean we have to wait until Ubuntu ships a version of ZFS that has that warning for a while before oh, we yeah. actually delete the feature? Five-year release cycles and or something. long-term right, releases. They're, like, and... they're still shipping at like 0.6.5 or something and the rest of the Linux world is on 0.8 of ZFS, let alone the fact that, you know. So, yes, yeah. uh, it, lots of interesting it, stuff. And, yeah, I'll go over 
uh, a recap of more of the OpenZFS Dev Summit uh, next week or the week after once I've had a chance to catch my breath. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's good. You're still fresh from uh, that conference. Like literally, and, uh, we're, recording yeah, let's get... this, we're recording this on Friday the 14th. I got home Wednesday morning. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy travel time and yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> but it's good that you were there and uh, provided some. Uh, I've, I've only slept in my own bed people. one night, two nights, two nights since I got home. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the headlines for this week. But people mm-hmm. have been waiting for it. Uh, the first thing we have is FreeBSD and Dragonfly BSD put up a strong fight on AMD's Threadripper two nine nine zero. Uh, WX benchmarks against Linux on Foronix.com, and yeah, this is a benchmark. Uh, we have a, we had a couple of uh, Threadripper articles in a couple of episodes yeah, so we had before. They, they noted the post that Matt Dillon did in his benchmarks, uh, hmm. but now they've run the Foronix test suite against Dragonfly 5.3 uh, and FreeBSD 11.2 and 12.0 Alpha 1. Uh, and then against a couple of Linuxes. Um, just because of the timing, it meant they used Alpha 1. Uh, hopefully, they'd be able to maybe do this on Beta 1, which has some of the debugging turned off and also um, it'll have the new uh, the NUMA feature enabled because uh, that only got enabled kind of late ah, yes. in Alpha 5. Yeah, that could be um, an improvement if they had to enable that. But yeah, uh, there will be tests when the release when when twelve coming is coming out, I guess, because that's yep. a fresh one. Um, but in this article, they have um, they started with in the past two weeks, they have been delivering a great deal of AMD Threadripper two nine nine zero WX benchmarks on Linux as well as some against Windows and Windows Server. So that isn't included in this benchmark here. This covers the Unix uh, systems. Uh, but recently, they got around to trying out some of the BSD operating systems on this thirty two core sixty four thread processor. Uh, to see how it would run and see whether they would have similar scaling issues or not, like they've seen on the Windows side against the Linuxes. And in this article, um, like Alan said, they use FreeBSD and Dragonfly BSD benchmarks uh, with the X399 plus 2990WX compared to a few Linux distributions. And so you would normally think, well, it's a processor. All these distributions would produce roughly the same results. But the devil is in the details. Um, they write that the BSDs they focused on the testing were FreeBSD 11.2 stable and 12 current alpha one. That's the current development version. It's uh, in rapid development as it uh, progresses to 12 uh, its release state. Um, but well, um, as the IX system is true as that is tracking FreeBSD 12 current, so that's also a different distro. Um, also included were Dragonfly BSD, with FreeBSD and Dragonfly BSD being tied as their favorite operating systems when it comes to the BSD. And then when it came to uh, FreeBSD 11.2, they um, it worked out surprisingly well, they write, and encountered no real issues during the two days of benchmarking on FreeBSD and uh, TrueOS, of course. Um, and it was a great experience, and FreeBSD was happy to exploit the 64 threads on the system. Yeah, while you have it, why not use it? And the system is um, not knows about them and can use them. And um, then they go on with saying that Dragonfly BSD was a bit of a different story. Uh, Last week, when they started this BSD testing, they tried Dragonfly 5.2.2 as the latest stable release, as well as Dragonfly BSD 5.3, the development snapshot from last week. Uh, But both failed to boot on either the BIOS or UFI modes. 
but then a few days ago, Dragonfly BSD lead, de lead developer Matthew Dillon, that we covered in a couple of episodes before, uh, they bought he bought himself a 2996WX platform and he made the necessary changes to get Dragonfly BSD 5.3 working and ended up finding really great performance and potential uh, out of that platform for system building, development, uh, package building, and things like that. So um, they tried the latest Dragonfly BSD 5.3 daily ISO on August 22, and indeed it now booted successfully, and they were off to the races so that they could participate in this benchmark. And so there were some Dragonfly BSD 5.3 benchmarks included in this article as well. So uh, hours ago, Matthew Dillon landed some 296WX topology and scheduler enhancements, but that fell out of the scope uh, of when Dragonfly was installed on this system. So maybe they do a second uh, benchmark in a couple of weeks after that to see what changed. And over the weekend, uh, they plan to retest Dragonfly BSD 5.3 and then um, see what how those affect those uh, optimizations. Yeah, and uh, also... And maybe by then we'll have uh, the next beta of uh, FreeBSD 12.0, uh, which has numerous changes, which is again going to affect the scheduling and, and the memory allocation specifically. Um, the other interesting thing from the benchmarks when we're actually looking at them is that they're seeing a very, uh, in a bunch of places, a big disparity between the version of GCC they're testing and the Clang 6 that's included. Uh, originally, Clang 7 was going to ship as part of FreeBSD 12, but it turns out maybe it wasn't quite ready yet. Um, but with it, with Threadripper being so new, it'd be really interesting to also compare uh, the benchmarks using Clang 6 versus Clang 7 uh, and seeing, you know, uh, like we said, the processes are the same in all the cases, and maybe the OS only has so much to do with it, and it might really come down to the compiler that's making the big difference. Yeah. Uh, and in general, it's... that's usually been my issue with uh, the way the Foronix benchmarks work. Uh, I understand they're benchmarking you know, the stock configuration of these different OSs, but um, to really find out if there's a, a, a substantial difference in the OS itself... Uh, what you'd probably want to do is test with the exact same compiler on all the machines uh, and see what difference that makes. Yeah, to have an even uh, playing right. field for now, all the systems. Ideally, uh, that would actually give you exactly the same results. Uh, and if that is true, then yeah. obviously that doesn't make a useful benchmark. <laughs> yeah, or well, you can just rule out that component. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um, but, but they did, if it doesn't give you the same way, results, you again have to ask why. Yeah, that if you have the same compiler on all these platforms, why are the uh, the numbers so different? Or the, uh, well, in different. particular, I noticed there's a difference between uh, eleven two stable and twelve alpha in like every one of their benchmarks, which uh, eleven dot two is slightly better. I'm wondering <laughs> if that's actually because debugging is still enabled in alpha one. Uh, that could be enabling it. Ah. Would only make a, the small difference to make it better than eleven two, or if it would make a really big difference, and then really could also be questions. the malloc debugging. Uh, yeah, the, the malloc debugging uh, witness all the lock order reversal checks, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah, it's uh, it's a benchmark as it is, and again, when these uh, systems have made a release, a new one, Dragonfly and FreeBSD, maybe they will do a second run of benchmarks. Um, but the hardware and BIOS UEFI settings, they were maintained um, the same throughout the entire benchmark process. The system has made up the AM... Um, has made up of the AMD Ryzen Threadripper 290WX at stock speeds, the ASUS ROG Zenith Extreme motherboard, uh, four 8GB DDR4 um, memory chips, Samsung 970 
EFO um, NVMe SSD for that particular speed and Radeon RX Vega 56 graphics card. And all of these Linux versus BSD benchmarks were carried out on a fully automated and reproducible manner using the open source Phoronix test suite benchmark framework. And while for the last of today's BSD versus Linux benchmarking on the Threadripper 2990WX, the Linux distributions came out slightly ahead of FreeBSD and Dragonfly BSD with GCC. Again, these are some of the development versions and um, they're not out there yet. Yeah. Overall, like, so, for example, in this uh, FLAC encoding test, uh, well, FreeBSD with Clang uh, was kind of at the, the back of the pack by a, about one second uh, with GCC on FreeBSD 12 and 11. Uh, it was actually out in front by 0.3 of a second. Hmm. Oh, yeah, here. Uh, yeah, some of these benchmarks are... Uh, the numbers are interesting to, to, to see. But, yeah, you have to know why is this and um, make your own uh, conclusions out of that. Don't take the numbers as they are without thinking about it. So... Um, Overall, they were quite taken away by the BSD performance on the Threadripper, uh, particularly the FreeBSD versions. And in a surprising number of benchmarks, the BSDs were outperforming the tested Linux distributions, though often by incredibly thin margins. Still quite an accomplishment for these BSD operating systems, and considering how much better Linux is already doing than Linux or Windows 10 and Windows Server on this 32-core 64-thread processor. Uh, but then again, the BSDs, like Linux, have a long history of running on high-core thread count systems, supercomputers, and other high-performance computing environments. So it will be interesting to see, uh, they close their article with, to see how much faster Dragonfly BSD can run, given today's commits to its kernel, uh, with scheduler and topology, topology improvements for the Threadripper, and those additional Dragonfly BSD benchmarks will be published in the coming days, once they're completed, and I guess we'll pick them up and do a follow-up. Yeah, uh, in particular, I'm also interested to know what differences we might see on FreeBSD with and without the NUMA flag, uh, especially on some of the multi-threaded benchmarks. Yep, because if we see these um, like bad examples or bad uh, numbers in benchmarks, there are developers looking at these and say, okay, where is this coming from? What could be the reason? And the, um, then the process starts of you know finding well, really, the place. The person doing the benchmarks should also be wondering why you know everybody's numbers are in this type range and then this one's way high or way low it's like oh there's probably a reason for it yeah and uh, either and it's... it might not be the operating system or the compiler's fault it might be a problem with the test as well mm -hmm. yeah so we'll see what the uh, future benchmarks uh, say about this but speaking of bsd releases our next item in the uh Headlines is NetBSD 7.2 has been released, and that's well worth covering here. Yep. Uh, NetBSD 7.2 is a maintenance release of the NetBSD 7 branch, uh, which had its first release back in September of 2015. Um, lots of security features have been added to later NetBSD versions, and for new installations, we highly recommend you go use NetBSD 8. But 7.2 got merge support for USB 3.0, uh, enhancements to its Linux emulation subsystem, uh, improvements to binary compatibility for ancient NetBSD executables. Hmm. I guess somebody's still running, you know, NetBSD2 binaries on stuff. Well, um, if it works. Improvements to the IWM driver, which is the Intel wireless uh, 7260, 3160, 8260, and 4160. Uh, support for the Raspberry Pi 3. 
uh, improved support on Microsoft Hyper-V uh, with legacy network adapters, uh, SRV4 and IBCS2 compatibility subsystems have been disabled by default uh, mm. on everything except for IBCS2 is not disabled by default on VAX. <laughs> Yeah, well, because if wax. you're running binaries from 25 year old <laughs> operating systems, uh, at some Give point, or take. You're, that's going to go away. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> at one point you have to jump to a newer version or a different system. Yeah. <laughs> or, well, if, if you want to run 25 year old binaries, maybe you should run a 25 year old OS in a VM instead. Yeah, keep the old stuff in the. Yeah. Little, but little uh, box. they have <laughs> IPsec and MPF vulnerability fixes, uh, Xorg fixes, WPA fixes, a uh, bunch of things like that. Uh, and like we said, support for USB 3, um, improvements to CARP, IPF, uh, the bridge driver, and a um, bunch of other things, including handling stack faults on the IRET properly increasing the max IO memory on AMD64 and improvements to uh, Zendom Zero SMP boot. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And of course, you if you scroll down, you see all the system families supported by NetBSD 7.2. Scroll, scroll, scroll. There's a lot of systems. Yes, whether you have an Eggcorn or a MIPS or if you still have an old Alpha, uh, or if you have Amigas, or how is that? Ataris, MIPS, uh, a B-Box. Your Sharp ARM Zoros uh, PDA that you still uh, have lying around, no one's using anymore because we have mobile phones. Console. <laughs> yep. ARM, uh, MIPS, PowerPC, uh, Super H. I have a phone that has a SH3 or SH4 somewhere. See? <laughs> the battery's expelled up on that one already. Uh, mm. The old HP yeah. processors, IBM stuff, uh, Apple Macintosh, Motorola 68Ks. <laughs> yeah, of course it runs NetBSD. That's their logo and their motto, and that's what they are, yeah, that's what they're known for. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Anyway, yeah, so uh, congratulations, NetBSD, on that mm-hmm. release. And um, so, on a in the past, normally right about now is when we would have brought you a sponsor spot during the show. Um, but as you might have heard elsewhere on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network, uh, Jupiter Broadcasting has become part of uh, the Linux Academy training company, uh, and that means that they are actually sponsoring the show, so we can do the whole thing with no ads. In between uh, so sections. that means yeah. a shorter and more concise and focused show for you. I know uh, most people were saying that two hours was a bit too long for BSD now. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we're going to try uh, to get it. But it wasn't due to, to the hour. authors or due to the <clears throat> sponsors. Well, they yeah, were no, a short segment. Just the amount of stuff. Person. And we wanted to make sure there was always enough uh, content between the ad spots and so on. Anyway, so. We'd like to very strongly uh, thank our sponsors, IX System, DigitalOcean, and Tarsnap for making BSD Now possible for the first five years. Uh, yep. Also, wow, five years we've been doing it's, this? That's a little it's been a long time, yeah. 
and they um, were with us. I mean, I mean, with I, the, B, IX, the original BSD. Uh, Ocean were here the whole time. Now, we got Tarsnap very early, uh, mm. and we thank them very much for making it possible for us to do this for the last five years. Uh, and now we get to do it without the ads. So even better. Yeah. So thanks for the, all these uh, years of sponsoring, and I guess they also got something out of it. Customers, people asking for these services that they offer, and yeah, it's it's good for them as yeah, well as well. It was for, for us. example, we will. Uh, Still mention IX, for example. Uh, they have all the, they were nice enough to take a bunch of pictures at the Open ZFS Dev Summit and oh, we'll nice. share those with you next week. Oh, great. Yeah, so thanks again to the sponsors and we'll now switch to our sponsorless episode. <laughs> So, time for the news roundup this week. Over at Farhan.codes, we find that including optimized out kernel symbols in D-trace on FreeBSD can be a problem. So, well, here the story goes. Uh, <laughs> so, they say, uh, have you ever tried to D-trace on FreeBSD and had it fail to list a probe that you were trying to find? Um, this is because Clang can optimize out some functions by making them inline a part of another function uh, or a bunch of other different ways. And the result is that the CTF, which is the compact type framework or whatever, uh, CTF convert will not actually generate debugging symbols that DTrace needs to be able to tell that, A, there's a, a function boundary probe there uh, or you know what the arguments of that function are. Uh, so uh, he has a quick hack to allow you to... Uh, basically cause all of the FreeBSD kernel to be compiled with all the optimizations disabled uh, so that that won't happen. In this case, um, Farhan was working on a wireless driver. Uh, I remember meeting him at uh, VBSDCon last year, and he was had this wireless device that didn't work, uh, mm -hmm. and he was uh, trying to get it working. And after some pointers from John Baldwin and a couple other people, uh, I actually saw on Twitter uh, that earlier this week he got it working. He's actually ah. transmitted packets over the Wi-Fi device with the driver he wrote. Uh, but in that process, he was trying to de uh, detrace some things, and it wasn't working, and he had uh, to figure out what to do. Okay, so yeah, in see. In his case, uh, he was trying to instrument the IEEE 802.11 IOCTL get 802.11, uh, whose sister function, uh, with a similar name, has a detrace probe in the FreeBSD 11 and 12 kernels, but the functions are located in a different file. So in his first attempt uh, was to add a C flag to his make.conf, basically setting the C flag's environment variable to dash O, capital O, zero, which turns the optimization level from the default to zero, and adding the uh, no inline functions setting. This failed to produce the dtrace probes. Several other attempts failed, and I was going to... <laughs> I was getting inconsistent uh, compilation results. Uh, and he says, is it me or is uh, 802.11 compiled with different flags if no clean is set? <laughs> hmm. uh, when I manually compiled object files by copying the configuration line uh, from the object file and adding the settings, he did get the objects he wanted, but that wasn't everything. Uh, so anyway, uh, as he continued to debug his Wi-Fi driver, uh, he says... It, you know, very slowly extending the RTWN uh, driver to support the device he has. He found himself rebuilding the kernel several times and frequently rebooting, uh, you know, well, why do that for the whole kernel? So uh, he found what he can do to the uh, 
the kern.pre.mk file that controls compilation of the entire kernel. Yeah, and the option variable is optly named minus underscore O. Because yeah, so that's what it is. Uh, that one to be dash O zero instead. Uh, and looks like he added one other thing. He changed the uh, C optional flags to rename registers. Oh, no, that was already there. He just changed the optimization level. Uh, O2, yeah, from O2 to O0. Less aggressive standard or less aggressive optimizations from the compiler side or the suggestion to the compiler to optimize less aggressively. The compiler can still decide how much optimization it will do, but it's a suggestion to the compiler to be more aggressive or less aggressive, and he switched it to less aggressive. Yeah. Uh, so he says a few thoughts. This seems like a hack rather than a long-term solution. Although maybe we just put an if statement it says if the environment variable, you know, debug all or something like that is set, uh, that would uh, mean you just set that environment variable and everybody or the, the kernel would compile with uh, the O zero instead of O two setting or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in general, that means the the code theoretically that means the code that you make is going to be slower. But uh, when you're debugging, that's usually what you want. Yeah, the more you have, the better. And that changed the actual number of probes available after that. Right. The idea was uh, now all these functions that were previously inlined and so on will not be. And yes, so we actually went from 71,000 to 91,000 probes. <laughs> so you can see why you might actually uh, want to be able to set environment variable to compile the kernel this way when you're working on things. Yeah, definitely. And the more debugging you have, the more insight into specific code regions, the better it is. And then after you fix that issue, you can still go back to the O2 compilation and uh, have the original settings. Yeah, uh, like he says, probably don't want to do this in production because it's slower, uh, but it does help with the debuggability. Uh, if you have some better solution to get, say, the detrace probes without having to change the optimization level, do let him know. Uh, but this is working for him, and he hopes it's helpful to other people when they're frustrated with the uh, probes. Uh, he also says, trying to use the uh, detrace ponycorn uh, as the featured image on his WordPress didn't actually render properly, and he had to you know, rotate and modify it. And for that, he blames Brian Cantrell. <laughs> okay, well, if only that. <laughs> Okay, yeah, it's good. And I mean, it's not just limited to the Wi-Fi driver. It could be any driver that um, may shadow uh, other variables. chunks of ZFS, actually, something I learned a, a little while ago, uh, was that on Lumos, they compile all of ZFS with the no inline setting uh, huh. to get all the D-trace probes. That's not the case on FreeBSD, uh, which might mean that FreeBSD ZFS is a bunch faster than Lumos is, but it also means that you don't get all the D-trace probes. Less visibility in certain probes, yeah. Okay, but yeah, now that we know where to, uh, where to look, uh, next item is something about fixing. So this is UFI bootloader stuck on boot current, boot order, slash boot info on the Asus motherboards and fix for it. So this is over at Neil Chauhan, pronounced that correctly. And the um, uh, blog post, I guess it is, yeah, uh, starts with starting with FreeBSD current from about a week uh, ago or a few weeks about uh, from the posting date. Um, but including FreeBSD 12, the alpha release, not related to the <laughs> DEC alpha, um, I noticed one thing. When I boot FreeBSD from UEFI on a home-built desktop with an Asus H 
87M-E motherboard and have root on ZFS, the bootloader gets stuck on lines like boot current, boot order, and boot info. This issue occurs when I try to boot directly to EFI slash uh, EFI boot boot x64.EFI. So one person had a similar issue on an Asus H7i-plus motherboard. And this issue may or may not exist on other Asus motherboards, desktops, or laptops, and may be specific to Asus motherboards uh, for Intel's Haswell processors, but may also exist on newer systems like the Skylake or older Ivy Bridges with Asus motherboards as well as Asus desktops and laptops. And so there are two solutions to this problem. First, use legacy BIOS mode instead of UEFI mode. That should usually usually work. UEFI is still new enough so that some systems don't work well with that. Or the other thing is install a FreeBSD UEFI boot entry. And keep in mind that the um, that he's not going to talk about this issue and third-party UEFI boot manager such as Refind here. Um, but the first option is rather straightforward. You need to make sure your computer has secure boot disabled and legacy boot or CSM enabled. Then you need to make sure FreeBSD is installed in BIOS mode. And however, this uh, solution is, in his opinion, uh, suboptimal. Why? Because first, you don't, uh, you are not able to use hard drives bigger than two terabytes, which are becoming more and more common. So this might be a, f- a problem in the future. And you are limited to master boot record partitioning on Asus motherboards with UEFI, as Asus motherboards refuse to boot from GPT partitioned disks in BIOS mode. Ah, that's bad. Yeah, legacy. Um, I would like to see that. Uh, none of my Asus motherboards exhibit that behavior, but. Um, I wonder if the Lenovo fix or the active thing might actually solve those. Do that, yeah. Or there's a BIOS update that could help in this regard. Yeah. Um, but the third reason is uh, legacy BIOS mode may not exist on future computers or motherboards. Yeah, because UEFI is more and more replacing the BIOS modes. Um, although those systems may not have this issue and this issue may get fixed by then. But the second option, however, is less straightforward but will let you keep UEFI. And many UFI systems, including the affected Asus motherboards described here, include a boot manager built into the UEFI. So FreeBSD includes a tool called EFI Boot MGR. To boot this, uh, or to manage this, similar to the similarly named tool in Linux, but with a different syntax. So on the system that is stuck on these lines in a bootloader, boot into a FreeBSD CD or USB and mount the UFI system partition. You can do that from a root shell with mount-t, ms-dosfs, because that is what is UEFI's file system. Uh, and then you put in your ADA0 partition 1, depending on which disk it is, and then uh, mount that to slash mnt in this case. And where, of course, you can replace that. Um, that's your ADA0 PI. That's the EFI system partition. And mnt is your mount directory, where it should be uh, mounted on. And set these values accordingly if your installation uses something different. Uh, and then you create a UFI directory for FreeBSD and install boot1.efi into it by running the following commands. First, you cd into mount slash EFI. Then you create a directory called FreeBSD. And then you copy slash boot slash boot1.efi from your live CD or uh, USB stick to MNT EFI FreeBSD, the directory you just created. And then you replace mount with the directory that you have mounted, of course. And after that, you run the EFI boot MGR command like this. As dash C dash L, you provide your directory. You just put the file in the boot1.efi dash L for a label. And that's called FreeBSD. And 
with that, keep in mind that you may be able to point the UEFI boot entry directly to EFI boot boot x64.efi and skip the previous step. Uh, but if you have not tested this setup, um, so be cautious. And after you run EFI boot MGR, you get a uh, following line like this. So this is a little boot order here that yeah, so tells you all the different boot orders you might have, and then you can use uh, dash a for a pen to add some, or sorry, to set the active one. Uh, and you can see it adds a star saying it's enabled. And then you can also use the uh, dash O to set the order you want. Uh, so, you know, do you want it to try to boot off the CD first or do you want it to try to boot FreeBSD first? And so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's simple. It's a simple bootloader, but it does the job. It switches between different systems. Um, hopefully in the future we'll have... Uh, better support for doing all this for you in the in the installer and also uh, dealing with multi-boot this way. So for example, on my new laptop, I left the original Windows install and just shrunk the partition uh, and being able to have both of those available in EFI and just pick them from the BIOS boot menu will be quite useful. Uh, I'm actually using Refind and maybe we can even add that to the installer as well. I forget what the license is, so maybe not. Yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, hopefully... This gets better in the future. Um, it's interesting. Most machines, uh, you know, if you overwrite the one file and it's the only one, it just boots it. But apparently, this Asus doesn't like that. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I have last week. I what was it? Two weeks ago, I re reinstalled a five-year-old system, and by using all these um, BIOS updates, I was able to switch from BIOS to UFI with FreeBSD eleven point two, and it worked just totally fine to my surprise. Yeah. And yeah, that's super cool. So maybe there's a, an update coming uh, to fix that. Yeah. Now, now we're going to start a firestorm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The keep your asbestos underwear on. This is um, <laughs> a little bit contentious, uh, to say the least. So uh, our friend uh, Chris Cyberman, who's uh, we've been covering a lot of his ZFS posts recently, uh, where he works at the University of Toronto, uh, says, you know, <laughs> why Ed is not a good editor today. Uh, here we go <laughs> so he says heretical units uh, uh, Unix uh, opinion time so Ed may be the standard Unix editor but it's not a practically good editor outside of a limited environment that almost never applies today uh, there's a certain portion of Unixdom uh, which really likes Ed the standard Unix editor having actually used Ed for a not insignificant amount of time although it was the friendlier University of Toronto version of Ed uh I have some reactions to what I feel is sometimes overzealous praise for Ed. One of these is what I tweeted. Uh, the fundamental limitation of Ed is that uh, what I call an indirect manipulation interface, in contrast to the explicit manipulation interfaces of screen editors like VI or graphical editors like SAM, which is uh, are generally lumped together as visual editors, uh, so-called because they actually show you the text you're editing. When you edit text in Ed, you have some problems uh, that you don't have in a visual editor. You have to maintain in your own head the context of what the text looks like and where you are in it. You have to figure out how to address portions of that text in order to modify them. And finally, you have to think about how your edit commands will change the context uh, and where you actually, you know, when you move the cursor, where you have to remember where that cursor is now. Copious uses of Ed's P command can help with the first problem, but nothing really deals with the other two. 
In order to use Ed, you basically have to simulate parts of Ed in your head. So Ed is a great editor in situations where the editor uh, explicitly presents this context uh, in a very expensive or outright uh, impossible operation. You know, Ed was originally designed for teletypes, where everything displayed on your screen was going to be printed on paper. Uh, line so by line. Reprinting the whole page every time you move the cursor didn't make sense. Mm. Uh, or, you know, really slow links where you don't want to refresh the whole screen if you don't have to. And, you know, we want to send and receive as little data as possible. Uh, or in real teletypes where, you know, the amount of contacts in the form of the actual printout you have means it wasn't a big deal. But back in the old days of Unix, uh, this described a fairly large number of situations. You had actual teletypes, you had slow dial-up links, and even rather slow high-latency network links, uh, and you had slow and heavily overloaded systems. Today, your text editor shouldn't be uh, contributing to the load on your system. Yeah. However, that's not really the situation today, at least most of the time. Uh, modern systems and links can easily support visual editors that uh, continually show you the context of the text and generally let you do more or less direct manipulation of it, whether that is through uh, cursoring around or using a mouse. Uh, such editors are easily and or sorry, easier and faster to use and leave you with more brain power free to think about what you're programming and not about the editor. Hmm. Uh, if you're using a visual editor, Ed is not a uh, particularly good editor to use instead. You will probably spend a lot of effort and some amount of time on doing by hand something that your visual editor used to do for you. If you are very uh, practiced at Ed, you might be per uh, maybe this partly goes away, but I maintain that you are still working harder than you actually need to. The people who say that Ed is quite powerful are correct. Ed is quite capable, although sadly limited to only editing a single file. It's just that it's also a pain to use. Uh, you're also correct that Ed is a foundation of many things in Unix, including SED and VI, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's the best way to learn or understand those things uh, just to learn Ed first. Uh, this doesn't make Ed a useless, vestigial thing on modern Unix, though. Uh, there are uses for Ed in non-interactive editing, for example, but on modern Unix, Ed is a specialized tool, which, uh, much like, you know, DC, the math program. Uh, mm. It's worth knowing that Ed is there and roughly what it can do, but it's probably not worth learning how to use it before you actually need it. And you're unlikely to ever be in a situation where it's the best choice for interactive editing. And if you are, something has gone very, very wrong. <laughs> but, you know, that yeah. is the point. The fact that it can help you out in those cases where things have gone really, really wrong. Uh, but if you enjoy exploring the obscure corners of Unix, sure, go ahead, learn Ed. And while you're at it, learn DC too, because it's interesting in its own way. And like Ed, it's one of those classic old Unix programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well... You know, Michael only wrote the book as a lark. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't meant for everybody to start using Ed. I'm getting the feeling that people using Ed are, are hipsters. You just want to be like, I'm using the cool editor. Yeah, the the, the alternative editor and yes. things like that. The standard um, editor. <laughs> yeah, you should all use that. Um, things like that. It's, yeah. But people, the nice thing about the Unix system, there's so much variety and you can pick which editor you like and no one will normally bother. See? <laughs> mm. 
So, time for the Beastie Bits and Pieces this week. Uh, it starts off with, is there any interest in a BSD user group in Montreal? With a tweet from our... Uh, our friend Dave. Yep, uh, who's also active in the chat room. Uh, yep, he's active so there. If you're in or near Montreal and uh, are interested in this user group, uh, you should check out YUL, which is the airport code for Montreal, Yulbug. Uh, on Freenode and or reply to the tweet that we linked in the show notes. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like so why not? There's a couple of people interested, uh, so it'd be great. Yeah, definitely. It's a big city. There might be BSD users you never knew about and you pass uh, each other on the street every morning or something. It's, it's well worth trying. I mean, each user groups usually start small, but once it's uh, been running for a couple of times and regularly somewhere... Then people, you know, oh, I should go to this one. It's been running for five times now, so why I keep away from it? Um, so, yeah, definitely we'll hear about this if, if it's happening and we can announce it like the other BSD um, user groups that we have around the world now, more and more. Uh, next item is tell your BSD story. This is over at bsdjobs.com, which we covered a couple of times. They have interesting... Uh, job postings once in a while or actually quite frequently and now they have um, the uh, person who's doing this, Roman, is um, doing a, a thing called Tell Your BSD Story uh, writing that I'm starting a series of BSD user interviews to help beginners, mostly developer and system administrators to discover, learn and use BSD operating systems and related projects uh, share your story and help BSD community grow. For example tell us who you are are you a software developer, system administrator, book author, gamer, network hacker, or artist? What is your favorite BSD system and why? How do you use it today? Do you use BSD at work or is it a hobby? Uh, you can update your story anytime, even after it's published. Start small, add details later, and please uh, direct message your story to him uh, via Twitter, Mastodon, or email directly. Uh, but don't forget a link to your Twitter, Mastodon, or website so that you can link to those people who uh, sent those. Uh, format, plain text, or markdown. Uh, thank you. And real names are preferred but not required. And they will publish the story with your display name and avatar. Yeah. Uh, so they don't have to be very long, although the longer the better, right? Uh, but for example, I have Olivier's here. He says, I read the Jolitz's series of articles in the Dr. Dobbs journal back in 1991 and started with 386 BSD when that came out. Then uh, FreeBSD 1.x in 1993 and then staying on FreeBSD ever since. I became a committer in February of 1995 as the FAQ maintainer. So uh, how do I use BSD these days? Every server-related uh, thing, whether it's mail, websites, SSH, ports building, etc., is done in FreeBSD boxes, every service in its own jail, etc. When I was a sysman, I ran entire authoritative DNS servers with FreeBSD 3.5, uh, but I was then told that the upcoming outsourcing company only did Solaris. Uh, BSD did give me a lot of contacts and friends all over the world every year, be it at BSD Can or your BSD Con. New people keep coming in, and that's great. Yeah, see, everyone started small and uh, figuring out, well, um, am I the only person doing this thing? And then, you know, it can grow and in different ways. I mean, Alan and I are the best examples, <laughs> the things that we do now that we would probably never have thought a couple of years ago. So... 
but it can still be your little server farm doing BSDs and it can also grow. So everyone has started somewhere and learned over the years to uh, run their favorite BSD. All right, yeah, we'll see how this um, progresses with more stories from people. Uh, next up is finishing leftover tasks from Google Summer of Code over at the NetBSD blog. And this goes like the following. The... Um, over the past month, they were coordinating and coding the remaining post-GSOC tasks, and this mostly covers work around honk fuzz and sanitizers. Yeah, so NetBSD had a lot of sanitizer work going on in GSOC, I think two or three different students. Uh, and it looks like uh, Camille here is finishing up a bunch of the work, getting the honk fuzz ptrace features sorted out, uh, and getting the rest of the sanitizer stuff going. Uh, so uh, I guess he says... Uh, he started researching kernel address sanitizers, checking the runtime internals and uh, differences between all the ABI versions. My intention was to join the effort with uh, Sidars, who was the GSOC student, and um, head with uh, the sanitizers for EuroBSDCon in Romania. However, uh, Maxime Villard decided to join the effort in a little bit earlier, and he managed to get quickly a uh, functional bare version of NetBSD AMD64. Uh, in the end, we had to decide to leave the kernel address sanitizer work to Maxime and uh, let uh, Siddharth uh, to work on the kernel code coverage uh, sanitizer. Uh, the sanitizer coverage feature is a feature of the compiler designed as an aid for fuzzers uh, to ship interesting information from the fuzzing point of view to a number of function calls. So it figures out what it takes to go down different code paths so the fuzzer doesn't have to try just constant random things it can know if i send this input i'll go through this side of the if statement and if i send that input i'll go through this side of the if statement and so on mm, and uh cool. they worked with that and then they have a list of things where they've actually merged commits uh they have the things they've merged to netbsd including merging freebsd improvements uh to the man pages for time spec get uh and a bunch of things like that and then things they've actually upstreamed back to LLVM, including adding the internal sysctl as used by FreeBSD, NetBSD, OpenBSD, and OS X, uh, trying to fix uh, some of that stuff on Mac and so on. Oh, cool. And, uh, yeah, uh, we should always mention that this work was sponsored by the NetBSD Foundation. And um, to continue this kind of development, uh, you can donate to NetBSD Foundation to uh, support them in this effort. Yep. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have a report from the uh, Stockholm BSD Users Group meetup uh, for next week. But they already have a note about it on the OpenBSD Undeadly, uh, saying that Anton <coughs> Lundqvist gave a talk uh, at the BSD Users Stockholm meetup about the kernel coverage tracing kit uh, that he committed recently to OpenBSD. The slides are available via the OpenBSD uh events and papers page. The slides contain a list of bugs found and fixed as a result of this work. Uh, and actually, uh, Jana Johansson, uh, who's another uh, BSD person from Sweden. Uh, he, oh, yeah. Was the, he ran the... Europe the Dev Summit a couple Sweden, of years right? ago. Yeah, that yeah. was that was him. Yeah, he was the, the local host or whatever. Uh, he says, one note from the presentation was that the bugs were found during the implementation and testing of a port of KCOV with a small uh, number of VMM guests on the laptop. This means the list will certainly grow now and uh, with many more runs running in parallel. Also, several people volunteered hardware and or resources uh, and donations in order to allow 
Anton and his project to run even more fuzzers, aiming uh, for a more or less automated testing uh, to be run every time a kernel commit is done to see if there's any new regressions. Mm -hmm. Yep, very cool. So that was fuzzing the open uh, BSD kernel. And the last item that we have is ARM, any tier one BSD options. This is over at listsnicebug.org. Um, so there's a question here. Uh, oh, that's from NetGate, uh, Jim Thompson. Uh, so no, uh, looks like the original post is from uh, Charles Brickman, who says, so I'm starting to rely on a Raspberry Pi or two here. And there I'm finding the upgrade options on FreeBSD to be a bit uh, labor-intensive. I was hoping for something like FreeBSD Update, uh, but that's not an option apparently. Mm -hmm. So for uh, all the ARM friends out there, is FreeBSD going to be making ARM Tier 1 anytime soon? Uh, to which George and O'Neill replied, yes, uh, hopefully in time, sometime during the 12 branch. Uh, packages, etc. will be built regularly, and so on. Uh, no idea about the other BSDs. And then Jim Thompson replied that NetGate has several ARM-powered devices running PFSense, including the SG-1000, which is a TIO map 3552, uh, and uh, the BeagleBone series is a faster version of the same SOC. Um, we did a lot of work on the Ethernet driver and so on. Uh, and then he talks about some of the other devices that are supported. Um, you know, uh, running PFSense means that they take care of the update images that way. Uh, but yeah, uh, we're, we're hoping at some point to get ARM to that point. We're also uh, wondering about what the definitions of the tiers are. Uh, but I think, yes, uh, a working uh, minor update uh, functionality is, is going to be a requirement for Tier 1. Mm -hmm. well, that's good. Yeah, so there's um, there will be improvements in the ARM Tier 1 front um and yeah as more people are using raspberry Pis and devices like that um it's becoming more and more important to also support these uh, devices yeah uh, they also mentioned that uh netgate is working on i think it's they're having a menu uh work on a port of the solid run macchiato bin board which is a, a marvel 7000 8000 series uh to get you know top end arm 64 platforms to actually run freebsd Mm, excellent. Very nice. Okay, that's for our Beastie Bits this week. Um, going right into the feedback and questions for this week, starting with um, actually a call for sending more of these feedback and questions to us. Uh, anything that you have that's on your mind that doesn't work properly or that you want to know, uh, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv to have more things like this in the future because the questions other people ask can maybe help you too. So that's beneficial not just for the people asking these questions, but also the person listening. All right. Um, but uh, this week we have uh, Chris uh, beginning the feedback and questions, starting with a Beehive question. And this goes, um, first off, I love the show and have been an avid listener for several years now. Oh, great. Thank you. Uh, I heard you guys said you needed more questions in last week's show. Yeah, and this one as well. Uh, so here's mine. Uh, I'm attempting to use FreeBSD 11.2 to centralize several of my workflows. And I've run into a snag with my Beehive Windows 10 environment, specifically USB, which is EHCI, pass-through. So you do a PCI dev, uh, PCI, yeah, PCI dev-l-v, list all the devices in verbose mode, and grab for PPT, 
and you get a certain card uh, yeah, so into basically want to pass their USB card through into the VM. Uh, the problem is when they do the right command to do that, they say beehive password device 0260 bar 0, base address uh, or size is not page aligned. So see the size uh-huh. being 0x400? Uh, that's not... Um, a a size they can work with? Uh, yeah, so... Uh, it has to be a multiple of uh, 4096, and um, 0x400 is only 1024. Uh, so mm. the size isn't the whole page, and you can't do a partial page. Uh, I don't know what it's going to take to, to relax that restriction, uh, mm. but yes, it means currently, generally, you're only going to be able to pass through a USB if you have a whole separate PCI card, not if it's uh, the, the chipset on the motherboard. Ah, okay. Hmm. So would a bug report uh, like this would help the developers to actually Um, see, do something about it? Developers are fully aware of the fact that you can't pass through a device that's not page aligned. Hmm. I don't know what the solution to that looks like. Huh, okay. Well, maybe there's a developer out there who just has a rainy weekend ahead and, oh, what should I do? And maybe hacking on this thing would be a, a good thing. Yeah, because Beehive is is open, as you know, you can work on that, submit patches, and uh, yeah, maybe that fixes it, or at least gets it a little bit better to the point that you can actually do the pass-through. Or if anyone has done uh, crazy magic doing this um, and making it work, then send this also to us, and then we'll connect the people together and cover it in a future episode. All right, um, then next up is Paolo with a with topic suggestion. Uh, starting with, hello, fellow BSD dudes. Just finished listening to the last episode uh, where it was mentioned, an upcoming segment to the final of the show doing deep dive on system-level things. As a topic suggestion for that, having some deep dive on packet processing and the firewall hooks would be awesome. I recently had to deal with some IP tables and saw the Prezo, which is still very high level, but yet useful, uh, went through some of the net filter flow and some basic kernel structures. There's a YouTube link here. And it would be awesome to see something like that for PF or both FreeBSD and OpenBSD. Cheers. Yeah, this was one of the ones I had on my list. Uh, so I've asked uh, Christoph Provost, who does uh, PF on FreeBSD, about maybe coming on and doing that. Uh, he says maybe if he has time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in particular, on FreeBSD, we have a pluggable firewall framework called PFIL uh, for a packet filter, uh, which basically provides a common interface that IPFW, PF, and IPF all use uh, to be firewalls, and it means it's actually relatively easy to add additional firewalls to FreeBSD. Not that that's necessarily a good idea, but um, it means that it actually provides this whole API that'd be interesting to walk through and describe to people and kind of follow a packet all the way through a FreeBSD firewall just to see what that looks like. Mm. Yeah, maybe after EuroBSDCon because Christoph is involved in that yes, heavily uh, in the organization. Organize that conference, so it'd be a, uh, a little crazy. Yeah, but then it, after it's uh, done, and most people, um, you know, they did all the the final closing. Not just after the closing, but there's also the organizational closing and the uh, book closing on that conference. Then maybe Christoph uh, can come on and tell us all things PF. Yeah, good suggestion, and we'll uh, follow up on that and see what comes out of that. And um, yeah, last uh, this week is Boston with how data gets to disk. 
So uh, we had Bastian on uh, asking a couple of ZFS questions. And in this particular one, um, uh, he writes, in your last show, you briefly mentioned how the data is being written to the disk from the application to the actual writing to the disk. And what is the path? When you save a file in applications, probably application doesn't write to the disk entirely. Does it hand data to the kernel, which hands the data to the driver, and then to ZFS, which talks to the hardware and the disks, making sure that the data gets written? Or is any other path how data gets written to the disks? Um, is this path different? Is, is the starting point in a local application or if data arrives from a network card? Yeah, so this one uh, might take a minute, but uh, I can go through that quickly. So... In your application, say you're using the C API, uh, you have the write call. So basically what you do is you open a file or a device with the open thing. Because remember, on Unix, everything's a file, right? Even your hard drive is just a file. So uh, you open probably a file in a directory on a file system. And then you get a file descriptor, which is basically just a number that tells you which file you're working with. And then you call write you have it this file descriptor and I want to write this data to it. And so you do that. Um, and then uh, because there's more than one file system, there's a system called a VFS, the virtual file system. So when you write, uh, it goes into the VFS layer, which provides kind of an adapter so that the application doesn't have to know what file system you're doing. The VFS driver for the file system you're using does that. So we'll assume it's ZFS, so that gets into the VFS code in ZFS, uh, which then says, okay, you want to write that data to that file. Um, and that data basically um, gets copied into an anonymous buffer in the arc. So if you are running top and you see uh, the arc line in top in FreeBSD, you'll see that there's like total, uh, frequently used, recently used, and then there's one called anon. And this is data that's not actually associated to anything yet. So you fill up some anonymous buffer with the content that you want to write to disk. Then when the next sync happens, uh, either when you write to the file, you specifically request that it be written to disk right away, or every five seconds, ZFS flushes out all the data that's waiting around in memory. So then ZFS uh, does all of its work, which we won't get into right now, but mm. you know, it allocates the block pointers and updates the metadata and say the updates the modified data on the file. All A that lot stuff. of stuff. But it then has... I want to write this data to this block on that disk. So then ZFS will hand off that data to Geom, the storage abstraction layer on FreeBSD. So Geom will take that and it'll do anything it needs to do. Like if you're using Geli, it'll encrypt it. Or if you're using Gmir, it'll copy it to both hard drives and so on and so on. So Geom does its way. And then you get down to a lower layer. I think it's CAM in FreeBSD where that deals with where you have your SCSI drivers or your uh, SATA drivers and so on. So whether you're using SAS or SATA, it'll go through a different driver and eventually you write instructions out uh, to the, the driver for the controller that say, you know, I want to write this data to this offset on this disk. And then you do that and eventually uh, the disk does some work and tells the controller that it finished the work and the controller tells Cam, I've completed this. Uh, or that there was an error. And then Cam tells Geom and Geom tells ZFS and then uh, ZFS does its accounting for it. And then if you did a synchronous write, so, so when your application calls write, it basically decides whether I'm, please write this data and then the program continues. Or you can say, I'm a database. I really, I need to know that this data is safe before I do the next thing. When you call write, you can say, uh, 
tell me when you're finished. So with a regular asynchronous write, you when you call write, the program will pause until all of we've gone all the way down to the hard drive and all the way back up. But with asynchronous, you just the program just keeps continuing and maybe writes more data and and doesn't wait. Anyway, so once ZFS gets the completion from GOM, it does its work, and then if the program is waiting, it will send the completion of the write command to the userland application, and it's done. And eventually you call close on the thing and you exit or whatever. Yeah, and you can find yeah, so the basics. Application yeah. talks to VFS. VFS driver talks to the file system. The file system talks to GOM. GOM talks to CAM. CAM talks to the the disk controller driver, so like MPS if you have an LSI card or the AHCI if you have Intel SATA or whatever. And then that talks to the physical hardware. Uh, you know, there's actually like the SCSI protocol or the SATA protocol across the cable and so on. If, if you do this thing all the way through all the different protocols and stuff, you'd be very, um, amused at the fact that we can do all of that in, you know, uh, milliseconds for spinning disks or microseconds for SSDs. Yeah. And also everywhere along that path could be an error. All the data needs to be passed from one yeah. Uh, layer to the next and needs to be in the same state not like in a silent uh, thing where you pass like uh, 15 kilobytes and in the next layer only arrives 13 kilobytes so that is also why zfs is so popular or so good at keeping the data the way it's starting from the main memory onto the disk because it keeps these checksums and each t uh, time it checks whether these are still the same before it puts it on the actual media ah right. uh, that's a little bit different though like yeah, you you send the data down, and then eventually at some point there might be an error, and that comes back to you, and then ZFS knows there's a problem, or any other file system, like UFS would know there's a problem in that case. Mm. But the really tricky one is when it goes all the way down, you read some data off the disk, and it comes back up through that stack, and it hands it to you, and it says, here's the data you requested, but something went wrong somewhere, and it's mm. not, right? The drive is corrupt, or the head was in the wrong place and read the wrong sector, or whatever, Uh and so, yes, ZFS will use the checksum, which is stored in the metadata, which is written separately, uh, to check when it reads, it checks that the data it got back from the disk is actually the data, how it was when we wrote it. And if it's not, it says, oh, I'm going to go find another copy of it on another mirror or RAID Z or whatever. Um, and this way, ZFS always knows uh, if the data it got back is correct. Yeah. Um, maybe another week we'll answer how... Uh, all of this works when you're sending something out the network card. Yeah, but it's 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 tying into that. It's just a different source of uh, where the data is coming from. But you can find the basics in every operating system manual where it says, you know, there's memory, there's hard disks, and yes, and, the layers are uh, in between those. Good point. That's, if you're interested in this type of thing, the design and implementation of FreeBSD textbook is mm -hmm. very good. Yeah, because that's uh, really a textbook for like yeah. teaching and... Yeah, knowing how these layers actually work and making changes in one of them if you so desire. Yep, uh, but maybe we can do one of those explainer video type things that we were just talking about uh, oh, yeah. for this type of thing as well. Yeah, with a little diagram to see which layer we are at currently. And yeah, that's a good thing because that's what you typically also learn in operating systems classes in university, like how data and I.O. is being uh, passed around. Okay, that pretty much sums up this episode. Uh, again, we are at EuroBeastCon when you listen to this, and uh, we'll be sure to report what happened there. And then we'll 
um, yeah, return to our regular schedules. Remember, there was there are still conferences this year. Um, talking about MeetBSD in October. Uh, if you are still not um, registered, why shouldn't you go? Uh, I mean, I don't know why you don't uh, go. And yeah, um, keep up um, with listening and send us more feedback. Stuff that you found about the BSDs that might be interesting for uh, the other people listening to future episodes. And send that to feedback at BSDNow.tv and see you next time. Mm-hmm.